There we go. Does that sound better like that? I went on to y'all. Unmute my mic. So Luke chapter 10. Uh, Several decades ago, a group of experimental psychologists decided that they were going to run an experiment on students and professors at Princeton Theological Seminary. So these are Bible professors and Bible students being experimented on unwillingly. They didn't know they were being experimented on. So here was the experiment. These psychologists placed an actor in a doorway on campus that a lot of people passed by, and they had this guy bend over on his hands and knees on the ground, groaning in pain as people would walk by him. So the idea behind the experiment was to see who would be a modern-day good Samaritan, who would stop, take time out of their day to see if this guy is okay. But there were a couple of twists in the parable, in the experiment. One of the twists was uh, occasionally throughout the day they would walk in and grab a student or professor and tell them that they were, at, they were supposed to do a Devo talk across campus on the Good Samaritan, on Luke chapter 10. So maybe they forgot, maybe this is something that they were supposed to do they didn't know about, but regardless they were told, hey, you've got to be across campus. And then another twist was the time pressure. Uh, some students, professors were told, that everybody's waiting on them. You've got to walk across campus, give a Devo talk on the Good Samaritan, and the time is now, so you better hurry. But some were told, you do have some time. If you leave now, you'll be there a little bit early. So those are the two twists, and they strategically placed the guy who was on his hands and knees, groaning like he was in pain, in a place where they would walk by as they walked across campus. So they set up post you know, a certain distance away, and they just watched and observed as these students and professors would walk by this guy, and they just made note of who would stop and help or offer assistance and who just walked on by. And at the conclusion of their experiment, the only ones who stopped to offer some help to the groaning man on the ground were those who had time. Uh, The ones who were speaking on the Good Samaritan but were in a hurry and thought they were late didn't even notice the guy groaning on the floor. But the ones who had time, the ones who were not in a hurry, they paid attention. And they noticed, something's not right here. This guy seems to be in some sort of distress. So they stopped and they asked if they could help or what they could do to help this guy. But time, time is what made all the difference in that experiment. If they had time, they stopped to help. As Americans, we're busy people, and a lot of times we feel overscheduled, maxed out, like we don't have a lot of time. So I wonder if someone was performing this experiment on me, what I would have done. Please don't ever try an experiment on me like this, because I'm confessing I don't know what I would do. I would like to think, we all like to look at ourselves from the best light. So we like to think, oh, I probably would stop, but who knows? So this experiment that they did was obviously taken from Luke chapter 10. And I want to go through Luke 10 and just stop and teach on a few spots here this interaction that Jesus has with this teacher of the law and see how it applies to us today. In verse 25 of Luke 10, a teacher of the law, some of your versions may say a lawyer, comes up to Jesus and he asks a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I think in this whole story, this teacher of the law asks some really great questions. And here's a great question. 
Everybody wants to know this question. He's not the first person who's asked it. And since him, thousands, millions of people have asked this same question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says in verse 26, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus answers his question with another question. Some believe, you know, that they bound the scriptures on their on their houses and on their foreheads. And so a lot of people would have a phylactery. It was like a little wooden box strapped to their head. And in the phylactery were scriptures written on it. So maybe Jesus was pointing at the man's phylactery saying, how do you read it? You know, what do you think the law says? And the man responds to Jesus in verse 27. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's his response. And inherit eternal life, love God, love your neighbor. The first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that is taken directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament. It's known as the Shema. Shema in Hebrew means hear. And the beginning of that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was everything to Jews. The Shema was of the utmost importance. They would pray the Shema. They would recite it. It was the first thing they would do in the mornings when they woke up. It was the last thing they would do before they went to bed. And then they would pray it throughout the day. They would teach it to their children. Everybody knew what the Shema was. It was the most important command. So that's the obvious answer. But the second part of that, love your neighbor as yourself, that comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So where does this teacher of the law come up with that from? If you're paying attention to the Gospels, he is just repeating something he's heard Jesus teach. This lawyer, this teacher of the law, has heard that Jesus is going around teaching that Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, is an extension of the Shema. So he didn't make it up. He's trying to start some sort of theological debate with Jesus, and he's just repeating something that he has heard Jesus already teach on. So Jesus says, great, do this and you will live. So the initial question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now Jesus says, you do this and you will live. Eternal life is important, but how we live right now is also important. But this teacher of the law asks another great question in Luke 10. In verse 29, we're told he wants to justify himself. So he asks the question, who is my neighbor? If Jesus thinks it's so important to love our neighbor as ourselves, then who's my neighbor? I love that question. I don't think he has great intentions behind asking this question. I think he's trying to trap Jesus as so many religious leaders were trying to do, because they had heard that Jesus was touching lepers and traveling through Samaria and healing the children of Gentiles and doing all these things that were just out of the norm for them. He was breaking down barriers, and so maybe what this guy's really asking is not who is my neighbor, but who is not my neighbor. Where do I get to draw the line? If we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, where do we draw the line? Where do we say, I'm not going beyond this. I'm not going to love that person. So instead of answering this question with another question, Jesus tells a story, a parable. And this is the Good Samaritan. 
He tells about a man who's walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's beat up. He's robbed. He's left half dead. And here comes a priest. Here comes a Levite. They both just walk by on the other side of the road. They don't stop to help, and some commentators would say, maybe the reason they wouldn't stop to help was because they thought this guy was dead, and if they were to touch a corpse, that would make them unclean. So they just walk by on the other side. Religious leaders, like a priest and a Levite, do nothing to help. But here comes a Samaritan. The Samaritan stops. He sees the man, he first notices him, and then he goes out of his way to help the man who was beat up. He pours oil on his wounds, bandages them, puts them on his animal, takes him to an inn for him to stay and recover and pays for that, and then offers to pay for anything extra following that. So he goes well beyond what have ever been required of someone to help him. That's Jesus' response to who is my neighbor. And then Jesus reverses it around in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? So the initial, the initial question was, who is my neighbor? Now Jesus is saying, which one acted like a neighbor? Who was a neighbor? And the man says, the one who had mercy on him. So if you're paying close attention, he doesn't say it was the Samaritan, because they hated Samaritans. So instead he says, the one who has mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And we're going to talk about verse 36 and 37 in just a moment. But the parable of the Good Samaritan has changed the world in a lot of ways. A very famous parable. Uh, for those who may, may not know the Bible very well or may not be followers of Jesus, may still use that phrase, Good Samaritan. He was a Good Samaritan. We know this, and there's different layers of how we interpret and how we apply this parable. Uh, the first layer is the most basic one, and it's the individual layer. This means do good. <laughs> right? Uh, this is the basic understanding of this parable. You have a guy who saw somebody in need, and he helped him. It's always good to do good deeds. It's always good to do right by someone. That's a great application, and that's part of what it means, is to do good deeds to help people in need. But then there's another layer. It goes beyond just the individual layer, and that's the social justice The question, why is the road dangerous in the first place? If this man's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he has to go through some rough spots, why is it dangerous? How do we respond to that as a society? This was made popular by Martin Luther King Jr. There's areas where there's concentrated poverty, where people grow up and they're not educated, and they resort to violence, and it's dangerous in some certain areas Why is it like that, and what can we do in response? So that's kind of the social justice layer. Why is the road dangerous? And then even beyond that is how we view other, someone who's not like us. And this layer, you know, we're not Jesus, we're not the Samaritan, we're not the priest or the Levite, we're the person in the ditch. We're the person in the ditch that has to rely on someone to help us out of our situation, and who is the last person that you would want to see come to you and offer help? Who would that be for a Jewish male in that culture? It'd be a Samaritan. If you're beat up and you're left half dead and your own people are walking by you and doing nothing to help, but then here comes the enemy. Here comes 
a Samaritan. It's pretty well known that Jews and Samaritans did not like each other, and yet Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. This layer was made popular most recently by a man named Joshua Graves. He wrote a book called How Not to Kill a Muslim. And that sounds bad, but the title was given to him from a Muslim man and said, you should use this title. But the entire thesis of the book was based around the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that book, he claims the Samaritans were to Jews what Muslims are to Christians. So imagine being in the ditch and you look up and a Muslim man has stopped to help you. So that's about how we see people and whether or not we can extend love to those who are other. So you see there's several layers of understanding the depth and the richness of this parable. And that's the beautiful thing about parables when Jesus teaches them is that you don't just walk away saying, well, this is what it means, this is what I do. You're chewing on it. You're still thinking about it. After all these years, we're still talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan and what it means to us. But after he teaches this parable, Jesus says, which one was a neighbor? Which person was a neighbor? So he takes the question of who is my neighbor, and he says, which one acted like a neighbor? Or another way of phrasing that question might be, who can I be a neighbor to? Instead of asking where you draw the line or where your limits are, who can I be a neighbor to? Who can I go out and serve and help and act like a neighbor to? Because Jesus says, go and do likewise, with the intentions that we will put this into practice. Now, if you're following the bulletin insert, we're about to get out of order just a little bit, just a heads up. But I ask this question, how often? You know, this lawyer, this teacher of the law, asks several great questions to Jesus, but one question he doesn't ask that I would like to ask is how often are we supposed to do this? How often are we supposed to be a neighbor? Because there's a lot of need out there. If you watch the news, if you pay attention in our own community and around the world, there's so much pain and suffering and poverty that we could go out and with our main intention every day to be a neighbor, to serve someone, and still not have accomplished all of it. So how often are we supposed to be a neighbor? Do you ever feel like you're trapped by your own life? Sometimes I feel that way. You think, you know, we got bills to pay, kids to take care of, a marriage to nurture, friends to keep. Uh, Some of you have parents that you're taking care of that are aging. We have our own medical problems. We have dishes to wash wash and laundry to fold. There's all kinds of things that we have to do throughout the day. And sometimes I feel like I'm just stumbling through the week. So I just think there's a lot of things I want to do. But sometimes I feel trapped by my own life, and I'm thinking, well, how much can I do? How often should we serve? So I want to challenge you with this right here. You can't do everything. But you can do one thing, and you can do that one thing well. Several years ago, I went to see a chiropractor, and he was a guy that I developed a pretty good relationship with. And he was asking me about how my week was going, and I was going through the list of everything I had to do and everything that I was involved in. And I wasn't even complaining. I was just telling him. And he shook his head, and he said, you're doing too much. He said, do you ever feel like you try to do so much that you're not really doing anything very well? So he wrote this quote down 
on a scrap sheet of paper. He said, take this and think about it. You can't do everything. No one person can do everything, but you probably can do one thing and do that one thing very well. So what's one thing that you could do? What's one area that you could serve in, one area that you could be a neighbor to or act like a neighbor in? For the sake of time this morning, I'm going to flip through this. This is an acrostic for the word shape, and I'm going to teach that another time, and I'm just going to, you know, that's a little teaser for you for later on in life, okay? But here at Pine Tree, we have mentioned over the last month now, uh, I've mentioned this question, what does it look like to be a functioning member of the body of Christ? What does it look like to be a functioning member of the Pine Tree Church of Christ? And we've gone through these different facets each week. We've looked at worship and the importance of committing to coming to worship together as a large body every Sunday morning. Uh, We ask that you commit to one Bible community. Some of our Bible communities that are offered Sunday mornings after worship or Wednesday evenings or ladies Bible class. Pick a Bible community and commit to that. Pick a connect group and commit to that. And then pick an area of service. And commit to offering one area of service. And then next week and then the following weeks, we're going to talk about discipleship. This morning, we're talking about service. What's one area that you can serve in? Our expectation is that to be a member here, you offer one area of service, whether it's internal service or an external service. It could be something that you're offering a service in that you're teaching class or helping with a nursery or, or doing something, sponsoring a youth trip. You know, maybe something that you're offering internally, and maybe you do that for a quarter, and then you want to extend into our external services, which might be uh, something local like Highway 80 Rescue Mission or Caring and Sharing or Homework Club on Wednesdays, or we even have jail ministry as an option. There's a lot of options for some local areas of service, and then we even have our foreign external options of service, like Mission Upreach in Ghana, and Let's Start Talking in Cambodia. You know, there's a lot of options that we have to offer an area of service, but you can't do everything. So some of you, maybe you need to hear that today, is that maybe you just need to pick an area and say, I'm going to give myself to this. I'm going to be a neighbor. I'm going to serve in this service area. Some of you, maybe you see that there's a lot of options and you think, I don't know, there's too many. I don't know where to begin. So we challenge you to find one area. Look at the way that God has created you, the gifts that he has given you, and serve. Who can you be a neighbor to? We're all called to be servants. Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus tells his disciples, if you want to be great, you need to become a servant. Jesus washes his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, and then he tells them to go and do something similar. He expects his servants, his disciples, to be servants. As you read through the New Testament, I did this earlier in the week, I looked at a lot of the letters that Paul writes and Peter writes and James and Jude and John in Revelation, and they may call themselves apostles and they may introduce who they are, but they always call themselves servants. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Peter, a servant of Jesus Christ. 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. They consider themselves servants because Jesus expects his followers to be servants. Uh, I've always been inspired by stories of missionaries who've made great sacrifices and done great things. Uh, There was a man named David Livingston. Uh, He was a missionary to Africa uh, in the 19th century. He and his wife left their home in England. They went to Africa uh, to serve, to be a neighbor, and to bring people to Christ. And they had a certain time they were going to be there, and then their time was up and they moved back home. And after being home for a few years in England... David Livingston's wife said to him, your heart's still in Africa, isn't it? And he said, yeah, it is. She said, well, then let's just move back. So they moved back to Africa for a second time, and this time they planned on staying for the long haul. But not too long after they got there, she got so sick that she passed away. So giving up everything to go to Africa, and he loses his wife, and then he gets sick himself, and he battles with malaria And he's sick off and on, but he keeps pressing forward. He didn't go back home. He said, this is where I'm called to be. And they would go way out into the bush. They would go way out there to try to minister to tribal groups who have not been reached with the gospel. And at one point, he was mauled and attacked by a lion. And people that write about him say that you could just look at his body, and the scars that were on his body told a kingdom story. And when he died, they sent his body back to England, But part of his body was missing. They had taken his heart out and buried his heart in Africa. As a 19, 20-year-old reading that story, I thought, yeah, that's what what I want to do something. I want to sacrifice so much that they bury my heart wherever I'm at. I was so inspired by that. And then I would read stories about people like Mother Teresa who did all these amazing things and sacrificed so much. And then there's even stories of Modern-day examples, there's a guy named Bob Goff. If you ever read or hear him speak, he's done so many things. So many great things for the kingdom of God. And I just think, yeah, let's go change the world. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot of places that we can be a neighbor to. But then I feel trapped by my life. And I think, but yet I'm still struggling just to get through each week. So there's this voice, this feeling that's there that just says, why don't you just start where you already are? We're already here. God has placed people in our lives. God has given us service opportunities within this church. Why don't we just start where we are and love the people around us? And love and be a neighbor and serve in the areas that we're already offering a service to. That's our challenge for you, is to find one area where you can serve, where you can be a neighbor to. And the discipleship part, which we're going to talk about next week and the following weeks, is Paul mentioned it this morning, who's your one? Who is one person that God has strategically placed in your life that he is calling you to disciple? And maybe your one will be in the same area that you offer a service to. So that's our challenge for you this morning. As we get ready to stand back up and sing in just a moment, we want to offer an invitation. I know some of you hear this week after week, and it sounds routine, but some of you may be here for the first time. Maybe you're a guest with us this morning. We want you to know that we have six shepherds, and they're going to be in the back, and one of them will be up here with me. 
And if you need to respond, if you need prayers, if you're ready to become a follower of Jesus, you can find myself or find one of our shepherds, and you can do that today. If you need prayers, you need to speak with a shepherd privately, you can do that this morning as well. Let's go ahead and stand and continue our time of worship. Make me a servant, Lord, make me a servant.